Hello and welcome to the Shepherd Walwyn podcast series. My name is Jonathan Brown. Shepherd Walwyn is a campaigning book publisher based in London, England. Our purpose is to uncover and promote new ideas to society's oldest problems. And whilst our specialty is ethical economics, something Anthony Werner, our driving force for over 40 years, has pioneered, we have branched out over the years to other related areas such as the environment and the lives and works of society's change agents. These podcasts promote ideas we're convinced can actually help us build a better society for all of us. So have a listen and be sure to share with your friends if you like them, but also tell us what you think. These are debates we all need to be part of. So without further ado, let's get into the interview. My guest today is Heather Remoff, author of What's Sex Got To Do With It? Darwin, Love, Lust and the Anthropocene. Heather first discovered flaws in Darwin's theory of sexual selection during her doctoral research in the 70s and she spent the last 40 years developing her understanding into it and related fields, including economics. What sex got to do with it is her attempt to add insight to Darwin's work so that it can accommodate advances in genetics and in female mating choice, advances that were unavailable to Darwin when he wrote The Descent of Man, his sequel, if you will, to The Origin of Species and his exploration of sexual selection. In this conversation, we learn about all the work Heather has done that took her from sociology in the beginning all the way through her PhD in anthropology at Rutgers and beyond. Heather, um, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jonathan. Um, so, Heather, um, you've written a book, and I've got the I've got the preprint before me. Um, what's sex got to do with it? Darwin, love, lust, and the Anthropocene. Um, I just wonder if you can and give us a brief introduction as to how you got into this topic. Well, I've always been curious about everything. And I, as a kid, I grew up around a lot of animals and observed different animal behavior. And so I became very aware that there was a connection between genes and behavior. You know, different breeds of dogs behave differently, et cetera. Now, obviously, they're not different species. So always curious about those things. And then as an undergraduate, because my older sister wanted to be a veterinarian and I didn't want to follow in her footsteps, um, I decided, well, I'll go into human behavior. And so I enrolled in uh, sociology. And my very first class in sociology, they said, well, the basic assumption underlining social be- sociology is that all behavior is learned. And that just took me up short because I knew from my experience with animals that not all behavior was learned. And maybe in humans, they're saying it was, but even then I understood that we were animals. Um, involved animals. So, but I went through um, three and a half years of undergraduate school, just acting as if I believed that because I wanted to get good grades. And then I finished my undergraduate work, got married, had children, and, you know, just felt the world can't hear what I believe and went about my business. And then I met a friend who began impressing on me Um, the works of a a popularizer of evolutionary theory, a gentleman called Robert Ardrey. And I began to read Robert Ardrey and I thought, oh, oh, sociology is ready for me now. I'll go back to grad school. You know, at that point I was working as a teacher. I was married. I had two small kids. So I enrolled in a night school master's program. And in the very first class in sociology I took, Um, the professor said, now the underlying assumption behind sociology is that all behavior is learned. And I thought, what? What? 
the field is still not ready for me. But bless that department. I mean, it was a night school department, so I would show up for classes and then go home to housework and kids and doing lesson plans for my next day of teaching. They, for my master's thesis, again, from an, an example in Robert, one of Robert Ardrey's books about um, ring doves, uh, one of Darwin's favorite species, you know, pigeons, that in, in um, a hierarchy of female ring doves, if they injected them with testosterone, quickly the hierarchy reversed itself. And the female ring dove who'd been on the bottom of the pile suddenly was at the top of the heap. And I thought, oh, that would be so interesting to do that with humans. Now, obviously you can't inject humans with testosterone, at least not someone who's going for a master's in sociology. But my program allowed me for a thesis in master's in sociology, my master's thesis was on the ranking of women in small, all-female groups as correlated to their testosterone levels, existing testosterone levels. And once again, the things I get, the exact opposite thing I'm expecting to get, I thought I'd find a positive correlation. I had three groups of women. I got perfect negative correlations in two of the three groups. And, and a strong negative correlation in the third group. The endocrinologist with whom I was working was stunned by that. But it was that research in sociology and blessed that department for allowing me to do that as a master's thesis that it that um, kind of turned me on to Lionel Tiger and Robin Fox who had a new program at Rutgers um, in sociobiology. It's, and they were interested in my master's thesis and I was accepted into that program, even though at that point, I'd only had one class in anthropology, but I was accepted into their anthropology department, which had a strong sociobiological. Your experiments showed that there was a, there was an inverse correlation between, between a female's testosterone levels and hierarchy in a group. Yes. Yes, um, exactly opposite what we would, what Robert Ardrey had led me to expect. Now, I never pursued that any further at that time. You know, this was back, oh, in the early 70s. Um, I've been doing this, thinking about these things for a long time, Jonathan. But at that time, there wasn't a whole lot of research done on testosterone in women. And at that time, the assumption was that the levels were fairly constant, constant throughout their menstrual cycle. Um, I don't know if that's still true or not because I've moved on to other things. So it made the research a little bit easier because I didn't have to control for the menstrual cycle where the, there'd be a, a large fluctuation in estrogen and progesterone. So um, that was, you know, that was what inspired that. But it was Lionel and Robin's curiosity and, you know, recognition that, oh, here's someone who's interested in biology and behavior in humans that that I think got me accepted into the program at Rutgers with very little background in, in um, anthropology. And I went to Rutgers knowing exactly what I wanted to study because I my goal in life was never to be a professor. The only time I ever went back to school, with the exception of my undergraduate program there, I just felt I should get a college degree. But the only time I enrolled in graduate programs was when there was a question that I was really curious about and I couldn't find the answers in books. 
And so if, I, if somebody else had done the research, then I lost interest in it. You know, I was curious about the things that I couldn't find answers that satisfied me in books. And so that's why I went back, back, I went enrolled in the graduate program at Rutgers, um, knowing what, what research I wanted to do. And what was that, the research? I, I knew I wanted to interview women and find out what traits influence their choice of sexual and reproductive partners. And I'd applied to other graduate schools. Um, one of them would have been a degree in biobehavioral science. And I'd taken some genetics and chemistry in between getting my master's thesis and going on to, to getting a PhD program because I felt I probably needed a better understanding of those things than I had. Um, but the other programs I applied to, for example, the, the, the research assistantship at the assistance I would have had would have been things like counting guinea pig copulations. And I was really much, much more interested in counting human copulations. What can I say? <laughs> so so I, I ended up going to Rutgers. And, you know, I've had some wonderful male mentors, even though I bristle at the fact that women are largely overlooked. And the reason male mentors, because there weren't really female mentors for me, but when I was um, interviewing at Rutgers and Lionel Tiger was interviewing me and I, I said, oh, now I have no background in anthropology. And this almost makes me cry. He said, we don't care where you've been. We care where you're going. Mm. And I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm a bit emotional about that because I hadn't had a lot of encouragement in my life and that, you know, someone's seeing that I might have ideas worth listening to. And so even though I can be impatient that when I was finished with my research, the main thing that caught everyone's attention was that I documented the importance of courtship feeding in humans. And I don't think anyone had done that before. That was the thing that caught everyone's eye. But even then I was most interested in wait, wait, there's something economically going on in humans that's very, very different from what's happening in other species. Mm. So, so what else I, you did know, you I, find out in your, as part of your research then? What, what else did I find out? Well, things that didn't necessarily please me. Um, I, 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 oh, you know, slippery memory, and I forget about research once I've satisfied myself that I've done it right, but that the traits that women listed at the top of the heap was what I coyly coded as control of material resources. Someone else yeah. might call wealth, but um, that was at the top of the heap. So was intelligence. And, um, but intelli intelligence was really relative to the woman doing um, that I was interviewing. You know, it, it was a very subjective measure and, and I did open-ended interviews. Uh, luckily, because I was in the anthropology department, the brightest female student in our program was a more typical anthropologist. You know, she had, she went, she had her people and she went and she studied and she said, oh, oh, Heather, one thing, make sure you always take a tape recorder because there will be things in there that you would otherwise miss because you're not expecting to hear them. Vicki gave me that fabulous advice. And in that way, I avoided some confirmation bias, as I mentioned briefly in this book, and I think in my earlier one as well, um, because 
taking someone out for a meal, in terms of the courtship feeding, taking someone out for a meal in this country is such a typical part, you know, let's go out to dinner, uh, at least in my youth, uh, part of the dating experience, that I sort of stopped listening when women began talking about menus they'd had 30 years before. I, I kind of, oh, just okay, I'll just listen and let them talk until they've described what, what the shrimp scampi tasted like. Uh, but then toward the very, very end of doing the re- interviews, I was tired. I tried not to coach my respondents, but one woman told me that her husband was and remained the sexiest man alive, the sexiest man she'd ever known. And I said, oh, oh, you know, tell me what traits trigger that response. And she was so embarrassed. She, oh, she couldn't think of anything. I said, well, Think about the last time he did something that made you feel that way. What was it? And she said, oh, oh, I know. He brought me two pineapples. He brought me two fresh pineapples. And at that point, I pictured a little lizard or some other creature for whom uh, courtship feeding is important, scurrying toward its uh, would-be partner with the gift of food in its mouth. And I thought, wow, courtship feeding. I wonder if that triggers desire in humans. So I went back and I I'd paid to have someone do, I didn't type at that time, to type up transcripts of um, all my interviews word for word. And I went back through them and there it was everywhere, courtship feeding. Not not so much a matter of, oh, we went out for dinner, but women remembered in detail what they'd eaten immediately before they had sex with the man for the first time. So at that point, I, I thought, oh, courtship feeding. Of course, that is very interesting. And people found that a lot of fun to talk about, much more fun than economics. Um, so, but the other thing that my research revealed I was expecting, again, total Darwinian when I first undertook this. Darwin was my hero. Um, I was not as sensitive to his misogyny um, and bias against the Irish at the time as I now am. Um, but I totally expected that the, the men that these women described as the most successful would be the men who had the most children. In fact, just the opposite was true, like my master's thesis. Um, my confirmation biases get smacked by my own research. Um, in fact, as we know in humans, those who have a good control of their economic situation tend to have fewer children. And we are very reproductively successful by doing that. Uh, in terms of getting our genes into the genes of the next generation, and in humans, it's we'll get to this is this I'm convinced the source of the environmental damage we're doing but that's that's a longer road down but Mm. um but that's really how I got interested in all this so I left um Rutgers knowing that nearly that neither Charles Darwin nor I knew nearly enough about economics not neither one of us knew a thing about human the human economic system. I sensed that it was very different from other what other animals were doing. Um, if I look back through my dissertation now, I was kind of very curious about R and K selected species. Um, again, the numbers game, 
you know, biologists, some biologists at the time were aware that it wasn't all about numbers, that some animals like the elephant have just very few offspring and yet are successful. Others like the ocean krill have a gazillion. And, and so the only way to make sense of numbers as a measure of reproductive success was to tie it to other factors. And I sensed then, oh yeah, the other factor you have to bring in is the way the resources are controlled. And so I, I was already thinking about those things, but I thought, I don't know enough about economics. And so because I had no desire ever to be a professor, I always knew I, writing was what I wanted to do. Um, I began to self-educate on economics and began to read, you know, up every week I trek up to the public library in Philadelphia where I was living at the time and check out the standard texts in economics and the internal logic of them escaped me. You know, I'd reach a point where I think this doesn't make sense. It can't possibly be true. And, um, one day when I was leaving the library with my fresh stack of books in economics, there was a little flyer on the checkout counter that said, Henry George School of Economics. Now, I'd gone briefly for two years to a small private boarding school called George School. And so when I saw Henry George School, all I saw was George School. So I, oh, that little flyer caught my attention. And then it said, oh, they're Henry George's birthplace, and they offered free courses in economics. And I knew Henry George's birthplace well. I'd walked by it on my way to the Reading Terminal Market. And I thought, oh, oh, maybe I should enroll in classes there. And then I, that's how I became interested in Henry George. And again, because I'm a contrarian, the whole time I'm reading Progress and Poverty, Oh, I'm fighting, I'm fighting, I'm fighting Henry George. I'm right. If you looked in the margins of my book, I'll say, aha, not so fast there, Henry. You know, fighting, fighting, fighting. Then he, he began to win me over when I realized he had no more um, admiration for Thomas Malthus than I did. I, again, I saw Malthus as the source of Darwin's flaws. I thought, oh, oh, so maybe this Henry George is worth listening to. And then about halfway through the course, uh, the phenomenon that Georges referred to as seeing the cat, I had my seeing the, see the cat moment when I thought, oh, this makes perfect sense. And I could, following that logic, could begin to predict, okay, I can see how this is going to work. So I was, the internal logic of Henry George's philosophy won me over. And at that point, I became an economic activist. I got very involved in serving on George's boards, etc. And, and the evolutionary biology drifted away from me a little bit for, oh, maybe, maybe 20 years. And then when my late husband was offered a teaching job in Massachusetts. We moved here and I'm very close, a bus ride away from Harvard and MIT and the Radcliffe Institute and all those wonderful institutions have fabulous public lectures that anybody can go to. And I started going to them. I'm hearing the giants in the field at the moment they're making their discoveries. You know, when, when their discoveries are fresh, and my interest in evolutionary biology came roaring back at that time.
suddenly I thought, oh, wow, this all makes sense. And I began to go to all those lectures and then different pieces would capture my attention. That's, and, and that's sort of the background to how I got to write this book. And someone, you're one of the few, the earliest readers. You know, not many people have read it since it's finished. My editors and you and the gentleman here in, in Massachusetts who has some background in, in population genetics and is quite fascinated by the book, which is really encouraging to me. But um, I forget where I was going with that. Oh, he described it as when he was first reading and he said, I feel like I'm working on a jigsaw puzzle, Heather. You're giving me lots of pieces and I sense they're all gonna come together in the end. And I said, oh, oh, Len, you're, you're exactly right. That's what it is. I, because I'm curious in so many different fields, I pick up a bit of information here, a bit of information there. And if it's something that seems true to me, but that doesn't really fit with existing um, theory, I kind of push it off to the side like you do when you're doing an actual jigsaw puzzle and you want to get the, the edge pieces first. Okay, these pieces are going to be interesting. I'm not sure how. Either I'm going to have to reject them when I find out they're wrong, or I'm going to have to find a theory that they fit into. And so in writing the book, I felt like I wanted my reader to kind of pick up the bits and pieces of information I picked up along the way. And then in, you know, as a result of discussions at the uh, Science Book Club for the Curious, which is sponsored by the Museum of uh, Science here in Boston, and just, you know, reader events at the Harvard Bookstore, where again, you know, people with such interesting books come and discuss it. And then the lectures at, at, at Radcliffe and, and Harvard, the pieces of the theory that are in this book really began to fall into place. And I saw suddenly, I, Henry George taught me the link between human economic behavior and inequality, human inequality. I would, that's how I got into being an economic activist. I, I was just outraged by the level of unnecessary level of inequality. But it was after I moved to Massachusetts that I began to see, wow, this also explains the kind of climate damage that we're currently experiencing. And so I think that is my biggest, I mean, inequality is still really important to me, but I'm afraid that climate change is such a threat to us that in a way I was forced to find my voice. Well, you know, yeah, and as we'll get into in, the, in later um, the later conversation, I think you, you you make a very clear point about how how they're, they're both connected, right? The inequality and the the environmental damage and um and feeding off each other. So on the on the book, then, who would you say are your ideal readers? Um. Wow! Wow! That's an interesting question. Well, certainly the gentleman who just quite by accident is reading it here in 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 her has read it here in in um, Arlington, and as I told him, oh, Len, you're 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 my ideal reader because he has just enough of a background in the science of it 
and then he just has one of those curious minds. I'm hoping that anyone who's concerned about climate change will be a reader. I'm hoping that people concerned about um, inequality will be a reader. But I think anyone, just the general public who's kind of curious about how the world works is my dream reader. And um, people who are willing to look at their own behavior and, and wonder how it fits into a larger pattern. So I think anyone with a curious mind, and of course everyone's interested in sex, so when people understand that it's related to Darwin's theory of, of um, uh, sexual selection, of course my ideal reader would be those gatekeepers in biology who I think, you know, in terms of, you know, the reader that I would like to most influence, I think probably gatekeepers in biology to make them understand that they really, really have to be looking at theories of human evolution. If, and I want them to take a more pragmatic approach to understanding human behavior. Humans are doing a lot of damage. And if we're going to, if we're going to address that damage, we have to design policies that, um, are consistent with what I think is human species specific behavior. So we need mm. a better understanding of that. So that would be who I'd most want to influence, but I'm hoping other people will read it, be entertained and, and think about their own privilege and their own behavior in terms of our social problems and our climate problems. So what was the hardest part about writing the book then? The sense that the sands in my hourglass are running out. That was both the hardest part and the motivating factor. You know, there's that, that expression, don't let um, the great be the enemy of the good. I thought, wow, I really have to take that to heart. I know that I have some ideas that are really important and really valuable. I know that I'm an imperfect um, vehicle to express some of those ideas, and yet I don't see anyone else doing it. And if I'm ever going to do it, I better do it now because time is running out. I have a New Yorker cartoon enlarged and, and tacked above my computer just to keep me at work on the days when I thought, oh, I might rather go cross-country skiing or read a good novel. And it shows a gentleman with a top hat, obviously some kind of a publisher, talking to an old bearded guy behind a desk in a library surrounded by books. And... Um, I, from where I'm sitting, I can't read the exact uh, line under it, but it says something. You have time for one more book, as long as it doesn't require too much research. <laughs> so I, 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 that, I would look at that and I think, oh, I really need to, to learn more about that. I mean, Heather, you have a central idea here. Get on with it. You know, you want to make sure you're still alive by the time this book gets published. So you I mean, did it. You did it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, so I'm here. I don't yet have a physical copy in my hand, but but that was that was that's what pushed me on. Get this done while you're still alive. You know, you, you, at one point in life, you reach a point where, oh yeah, um, mortality is a real thing, and yeah, nobody manages to sidestep it. So, what what did you enjoy most about writing the book then? Actually, I loved the process. I, 
you know, it, sometimes it's hard to sit down and get started. I'm, I'm a solitary person. I know I appear to be gregarious, but I'm, I'm a gregarious recluse. I, I really like being alone. So it's sometimes hard to get started, but once I get into it, have you ever done writing? I, I you know, I'm not. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, you kind of at some point get into sort of a, a zone. I used to run marathons, and that runner's high is very familiar to me. And you know, we're in the beginning; it hurts, and you're cold, and and then all of a sudden, you just get this endorphin rush. I have the same thing happening happen to me when I'm writing, when I get into it. It's it the process takes over and it's it's almost like a runner's high and so that was fun and I like playing with ideas and um, even though I say I'm a recluse I like the sense of communicating with other people and so while writing I would envision someone who might be entertained by what I'm writing and so I would have that sense of a social connection one time I said I sent something to a a friend who's a fellow writer, because at the end of the day, sometimes if I was captivated by what I'd written that day, I would fire it off to a friend. And and Vicky responded back. I said, oh, I just think this is so funny and so erotic. And Vicky emailed back. She said, Heather, I don't find anything either funny or erotic in what you've written, but your writing is really grand. <laughs> so, that uh, you know, so... Um, I may have a, an odd sense of what is humor or what is ironic. I, you know, you've read the book. I hope there were places that you found funny, uh, you know? Yeah. Because yeah. I think my news is hard in terms of what we're doing in terms of environmental damage. And so I, I want to keep my reader engaged with the sense this isn't all gloom and doom. There is some humor in, in, and, and just the human absurdity that we have to see the humor in some of it. So I hope, I hope there's some funny stuff in there. Well, but, I mean, the, the, one of the things that does stand out would be the, would be what it was in, in Jeff Bezos's pants that was attractive <laughs> to women. Um, and it wasn't uh, the idea that he would send dick pics um, was a revelation that I really would rather not have had, but um, <laughs> I guess I he is. On that you know, one richest guy in the world and he's still a guy right yep. so um are there anything is there anything in the in the book any any terms or concepts that would be helpful to to define for our readers um before they get into it i, I well i think concealed ovulation is something that puzzles people um and, and and my daughter will say, oh, mom, no, no, concealed ovulation is not the answer to everything. But in fact, in terms of human evolution, it's a pretty big deal. And because I'd had a background in farm animals, not that my family were farmers, they weren't, but at one point we rented a property with a barn, an empty barn and 10 acres. And my two sisters and I began filling that barn with every furred, feathered and finned animal creature you could think of. And so... I had experience with, with other animals and I knew that, you know, there were periods of estrus or heat that were very visible. And when a female was in heat, at that point, people didn't keep their dogs at home. You know, you, you know, we're talking now 
the 50s, the early 50s, <laughs> that far, you'd be driving along the road and there'd be a little parade of male dogs trekking along, very determined. You knew exactly where they were going. Someone in the neighborhood had a female dog in heat and they were all on their way to pay a visit. So I was very aware that humans were quite unusual in terms of concealed ovulation. And, and that just means when we're fertile, uh, when a female is in a fertile, fertile period, it's not obvious to everyone around her. It may not even be obvious to her at a conscious level. At some hormonal level, I think that it is obvious. Uh, certainly the women I interviewed gave me the sense that their behavior, uh, their choice of men may have been different. But again, I wasn't doing hormonal work with them. I wasn't working with an endocrinologist on that particular bit of research. So, uh, so I think the idea that humans are very unique in having concealed ovulation is quite central to my book, because as I say, it raises female choice. It, it really gives it far more power because women do have more control. They're not suddenly just swarmed. Um, so I, I think that's one one concept that 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 would be pretty important to grasp for people to grasp the important the potential importance mm. of of that. Um, and uh, the the idea of of chromosome fusion, you know, for someone who's uninterested in genetics, that may you know an end to end fusion of chromosomes. I mean, I think the general public is aware of the kinds of um, anomalies that can happen, you know, during um, meiosis and mitosis, and what happens when chromosomes don't separate, you know, um, sort of horizontally. But the end to end chromosome fusion is, is not as common because there's the, the telomeres that protect the ends of the chromosomes. And so that's something that I think is an interesting concept that was fairly new to me. Again, I, I learned of that end-to-end chromosome fusion from a book we were reading in the Science Book Club. I mean, these, these so many of the ideas that I have in there are, oh, there's the puzzle piece. That's the missing piece. Mm. And... Um, so I think that's that's a really significant concept. And the only science popularizer that I'm, and I put myself kind of in that category. I, I don't view myself as a specialist, except maybe in, in female choice in humans and sexual selection in humans. I, that would be, if I could claim any specialty, I think that would be it. But the only popularizer of, of science that I know who's paid attention to chromosome fusion is, is um, Adam Rutherford, who you may know, know who he is in his book. When it was published in the States, I think the title was um, Humanimal. It had a different title in the UK, but he mentions um, uh, chromosome fusion in there as being the origin of our species. And I thought, wow, nobody nobody goes there hmm. and you know rather than the gradual slow gradual again the darwinian uh, assumption that's so basic that no one thinks to challenge it the gradual gradual shaping of species uh, adam rutherford said no no it looks like human origins were pretty abrupt 
as the result of this chromosome fusion. So I think that's a really important concept to go into it with. And in terms of concealed ovulation, that reminds me of another experience I had at Rutgers, one of my eureka moments. Uh, a primatologist, I was trying to explain one of the to one of the primatologists why I thought it was important to interview women about their mate choice in terms of how humans evolved and female choice. And he, he looked at me, he said, oh my God, anybody who's ever seen the pandemonium that results when a female chimp is in heat, it's, 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 it's an orgy. Could ever consider that there's such a thing as choice, that females have any choice at all. And he laughed and walked down the hall laughing and shaking in his head how crazy it was for me to think that females exercised any choice. And that was the moment when I thought, oh, oh, concealed ovulation. That's the difference that makes a difference between humans and chimpanzees. And, and that's the difference that makes a difference. That's how we evolved to. I mean, all you have to do is look around at the impact we've had on the world, our language, all of those things. Although, as I speculate in the book, I, I think the some change probably occurred in the way our brains are 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 wired, programmed at the moment of that um, chromosome fusion. I think it was the brains and and the ovaries that were impacted most mm. by by that fusion. Amazing. Amazing. So what's next for you? What are you working on now? Um, actually, I'm, I'm working on hoping that this book has an impact. And if it does, I, I'm not thinking in terms of another full-length book. Although in the past, when I was trying to have my ideas heard and couldn't get the ear of any of the gatekeepers, I mean, I would pitch to agents Um and just couldn't get, because I because I'm not formally affiliated with the university, I don't have that background. My only claim to fame is I have a very curious mind. And and I theories, I love to play with theories and you know, try to fit pieces together and give me a a, a concept, an idea of how something really works. But um at one point I had an agent, I was I said, okay, I'll write fiction. I'll get my ideas out there in fiction. And so I wrote a, a trilogy, a fantasy trilogy, which was very arrogant of me because I don't read fantasy and tried very hard with these ideas in it. I thought I'll get my ideas out there through fiction. But one agent that I pitched said to me, no, he said, I don't, I don't handle fantasy. He said, but wow, if you ever wanted to write a nonfiction book, I'd be open to any nonfiction book that you wanted to pitch me. At that point, I was only in my 70s, and I thought, oh, I'm much too old to undertake a work of fiction. <laughs> Requires far too much research, all of the cartoon above my computer. But um, um, eventually, this my sense of concern about the climate just made me no, no, it's okay. You have to you have to do your work in nonfiction now. And luckily, Shepard Walwyn um, was was open to the idea. And but yeah, I mean, having you know, I read it with them, like one of the first readers of the book. Um, it really does feel like it's a culmination of a of a lifetime, a lifetime of work and and of curiosity, which is really what you. When I look at some of the ideas that you came from, it's like, wow, that's. I hadn't thought, I had no idea that that could be impactful. And then the more I've thought about it, it's 
you know, like the whole thing around the the con, you know, the um, concealed ovulation and um, the whole thing around the importance of sexual selection and and how how you know the importance of, of female choice being so being regarded as being such an unimportant aspect of of evolution and the whole thing how you can how evolution can go you know it happens at a glacial pace and then very suddenly um and how that can happen when when people are actually making conscious choice rather than it being random randomly selected as you as you talk about in the book so it's um no it was a really interesting read so thank you very much Hey, well, Jonathan, thank you. You've just established yourself as my dream reader. Okay. And that's what you took from the book. You and Len and my editors have now fallen into, I've got four of you in that category. I can't wait till the book's out there. Maybe we can get Adam Rutherford to find it interesting as well. I don't know. But the fact that, that, that those points came through to you, that gives me more joy than I can express. Well, thank you very much for your time. And, um, I'm sure a lot of people have a lot of fun reading it. That, that fun is what I want. Thinking should be fun, right? It's 100%. 100%. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Shepherd Whirlwind podcast. To explore these ideas further, be sure to visit our website, www.shepherdwalwin.com and join our mailing list for news and special offers. Check out our authors and buy the books to learn more. And you can also find us on social media. Links are also on the website. And if you like the podcast, please head over to iTunes or Spotify to give us a review. It's surprisingly helpful in getting the ideas out there. So until next time, keep reading. <laughs>